This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are in Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomelele Zondi and I'm with Joala Netulo, Wissani Matebula and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. The news of criminal prosecution of South Africa's finance minister continues to generate varying views. The South African Federation for Mental Health says people living with depression sometimes have no idea where to go for help. In economics, a Kenyan private equity firm buys a controlling stake in Tanzanian pharmaceutical companies in Ufa Laboratories. And in sports, Rafael Nadal was sent packing from the Shanghai Masters after a second-round defeat. It's time for your news with Jola Netulo. Thank you, Spumalele. Good evening. Burundi's parliament has voted overwhelmingly in favor of withdrawing from the International Criminal Court. The vote comes amid a deepening row over political violence in the East African country. Only two lawmakers voted in favor of staying, while 94 voted against and 14 abstained. A pro-government lawmaker said the court was a political tool used by powers to remove whoever they want from power on the African continent. Earlier this year, the ICC opened a preliminary investigation into Burundi, focusing on acts of killing, imprisonment, torture, rape and other forms of sexual violence, as well as enforced disappearances. A wanted warlord in southeastern the Democratic Republic of Congo has surrendered five years after he escaped from prison. Gideon Kyungu was awaiting execution for crimes against humanity. The leader of the separatist group Bakata Katanga turned himself in with about 100 of his fighters at a ceremony in the village of Malambwe on Tuesday. It was not immediately clear why he had surrendered. South African anti-apartheid struggle veteran Ahmed Kathrada has confirmed he will be at the Pretoria Regional Court on November 2nd to support Finance Minister Pravin Gordon. This follows yesterday's decision by the National Prosecuting Authority to charge the minister with fraud. Kathrada is hoping to be joined by some of the board members of the foundation, director of the foundation Nishan Balton. Pravin Gordon Treasury has come to represent all that Mr. Kathrada thinks is, is, is of immense value to this country. Um, for, for him and for the foundation, Minister Gordon stands for clean governance, economic stability and ethical leadership. And Mr. Kathara's view is that whilst these charges have been brought and that Mr. Gordon should now go to court and uh, prove his, his, his innocence, he thinks that, that there is a case to be made for South Africans to rally support behind Mr. Gordon because all that he has come to symbolize for South Africa today. 
South Africa's Opposition Democratic Alliance wants the public broadcaster Slaudi Mutuning to be removed from the position or from his position. The party wants the court to declare his appointment as the ACBC's head of corporate affairs invalid and unlawful. Addressing the media in Parliament, DA Federal Executive Chairperson James Salf says they had filed papers in the High Court in Cape Town to challenge Mutuning's new appointment. In doing so, we are asking the courts to make a determination that Mr. Mutsuneng is not a fit and proper person to serve in a senior position in the SABC. Specifically, our court papers call that the court finds that this application seeks to finally remove Mr. Mutsuneng from the SABC and prevent him from serving in any senior position in the SABC unless and until the public protector's damning findings about his conduct and character are reviewed and set aside. And finally, more than a thousand people on Kenya's south coast embarked on a 500-kilometer walk on Monday to the State House in Kenya's capital Nairobi. The four-day walk, dubbed traffic, tracking rather against statelessness, is meant to tell President Kuru Kenyatta about the plight of not being recognized by the Kenyan government as citizens after independence in 1964. Thomas Nguli of Makonde Community explains. We are tired of lies from the government officials. The law clearly stipulates that by August this year, we would have been all given identification cards. But already August has passed, but we have been given nothing and no government official has said anything about our matter as Makonde community. The question is, how will I get a birth certificate for my child? How will I get my land title deed? How will I bank my money when I don't have any national identification card? For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Seventeen oh six Central African time. Thank you very much, Alan, for that update. Now, the government of Burundi has decided to suspend all cooperation with the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in Burundi on allegations of having played a role in drafting the Human Rights Report on the situation in the country by the experts of the UN Independent Inquiry in Burundi, a report which sparked massive violence of the ruling party militants. In a statement released yesterday by the government, the three experts of the EIN namely Maya Fadel Sakli from Algeria and South African Christopher Haynes and Pablo de Grief from Colombia have been declared persona non grata on Burundian territory for breaches and serious harm caused to the state and the Burundian people as alleged by the government. Such a decision is expected to isolate furthermore Burundi from the rest of the world. An analysis made by Professor Philip Arangis, a Belgian specialist on the Great Lakes region, who spoke to our correspondent Bernard Bankokira from the capital Pujumbura. Professor Philip Rechens, the Burundi government has declared a persona non grata, the three UN experts who produced the recent human rights report on Burundi, which sparked mass protests of ruling party militants in the country. 
It also announced the suspension of its cooperation with the Office of the UN Human Rights Commission in Burundi, accusing the head of the office to have collaborated and contributed to the contested report. You, as a specialist on the Great Lakes region, how do you understand the position of the country? Yes, well, let me add that apart from the three members of the uh, expert commission, uh, in, in addition, uh, the special rapporteur, Mr. Pablo de Greif, has been declared persona non grata as well. So this is a, a very hostile reaction by the Burundian government. Uh, I think it's in line with an evolution we've been seeing for the last, well, almost year, I would say. Uh, Burundi has been, or at least the Burundian government, has consistently considered itself the victim of an international conspiracy and has rejected uh, any sort of intervention in what it calls its internal affairs. This is not just true for human rights observation of the um, High Commissariat of Human Rights in Burundi, but also the African Union, the, in a sense even the East African community, and certainly also the United Nations. So what we see is an increasing trend, and a worrying trend, I should add, by the Burundian government to isolate itself from the rest of the world. And that, of course, is a very dangerous path to follow, particularly because Burundi is a, is a very small, poor, and a dependent country. Let's come to the report. Uh, Burundi accuses the Commission to rely on wrong information provided by ill-willed people whose aim is to plunge the country into chaos. What do you think of these allegations on the content of the report? Yeah, well, that, that's basically what they say. They say they uh, refer to the uh, certain complicity of the Office of the uh, High Commission of Human Rights. And it says that the report uh, that came out uh, lately uh, is full of lies and controversy. And that is the basis for its suspension of cooperation with the structures of the Bureau and the uh, panel of experts. The Burundian government doesn't explain in the uh, that was released yesterday on the, uh, the 11th of October, what these um, lies, as they call it, what these lies in these reports are, um, they have been uh, reacting rather uh, strongly to that sort of reporting in the past, not just by uh, UN agencies, but also by international human rights organizations such as Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. And basically what they say is that it's, it, it's a pack of lies. Some of it might be not entirely accurate or adequate, but, but most of the observations found by all sorts of international observer missions is that the situation of human rights in Burundi is indeed a very serious threat. Professor, the government of Burundi has threatened to quit the International Criminal Court following its decision to undertake a preliminary investigation on the human rights violations committed in the country from April 2015 as a result of this report produced by the bond experts. According to you, do you think this will prevent the ICC to go on with the proceedings? Well, first of all, again, the, 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 the announcement made that Burundi intends to withdraw from the Rome Statute on the International Criminal Court is another illustration, of course, of what I said earlier about the isolationist tendencies among the Burundian government today. They will at any rate not avoid further investigations by the ICC because a country leaving the ICC statute needs to give a notice of, of one year, I think it is. And so in other words, until that year has passed, 
the ICC remains competent for the situation in Burundi. In addition, I should add that even countries that are no parties to the ICC can be investigated, provided, and, and prosecutions could actually be launched, provided the uh, UN Security Council decides so. So, in other words, I don't think by leaving the ICC, Burundi will be uh, will rid itself of, of what it sees as a problem. Professor, currently, what should the Burundi government do to restore its relationships with the international community? Well, I think it should, first of all, restore its relationship with all those political and social forces of Burundi. And if they did that, they would automatically restore their relations with the international community. Uh, what needs to be done is a genuine dialogue with all the forces, uh, political, social, and referring to civil society, the press, uh, the, the churches, uh, all those organizations in Burundi. After all, this is a Burundian problem. It's not as yet an international problem. And the government right now is simply not willing to do that. It wants to engage in dialogue, but wishes to decide with whom it is going to debate or to enter into that, that dialogue. Well, that is not how it works. It needs to involve everyone. And if the party currently in power in Burundi, the CNDD, FDD, has been able uh, from 2003 to... Uh, to get involved in, in the internal political Burundian dispensation precisely because there was some sort of an, an, a provisional immunity which, which is still there. I mean, the provisional has lasted for a very long time. But the Burundian government will eventually have to talk to all those forces. And unless they do that, the current situation of instability and isolation, I'm afraid, will continue to exist. That is Professor Philip Rankes, a Belgian specialist on the Great Lakes region on the line from Brussels, with our correspondent from Puchumbura, Bernard Bankokira. South African economists have warned that the country could see a free fall in the exchange rate if the rating agencies downgraded it to a non-investment grade. Chief Economist at Econometrics, Dr. Azar Jamin, says it's important that the Treasury's credibility is protected following the announcement by the National Prosecuting Authority that Finance Minister Pravin Gordon has been summoned on fraud charges. The announcement has sparked an outcry from all sectors within the Southern African nation as the rand fell by more than 3% in response to the news. Dr. Jamin explains... In the current economic climate, it is absolutely critical that the integrity of the national treasury is sustained because there are fears that in the event of populist elements taking hold of national treasury, there is scope for huge excesses in government spending, many of them not for very productive purposes, and that would see our public debt levels soaring ahead that in turn would automatically cause credit ratings to downgrade our credit rating. Mm. And that in turn could result in a sharp freefall in the exchange rate that sends inflation and interest rates up very sharply, leading to a recession, which exacerbates the ability of the government to raise revenue to finance its expenditure. And so one ends up in a vicious circle of 
declining growth, lower exchange rate, higher inflation and higher interest rates. Mm. Now, what would be the ideal remedy in this case? Um, Of course, uh, it's been a hot topic since the announcement of these uh, full charges against the finance minister. Um, Some people saying that um, he should be um, taken off this particular post uh, to uh, salvage the credibility of the country. What are your thoughts around that? Well, no, I mean, now that the process has been put in place, there's no point in going back on it. But, you know, it did seem ridiculous yesterday that the Minister of Finance should be summoned for the way he dealt with a 1.1 million rand pension scheme of an employee of SARS, very heavy-handed in relation to the type of uh, misdemeanor, if there was any, especially relating to a finance minister. Now, we envisaging um, a downgrade later on in the year. If the country was to be downgraded, of course, how long will it take the country to recover from this? It's very difficult to say how long the country would need to recover from this. Really, I think it's like saying how long is a piece of string. It would all depend on how this country actually dealt with the downgrade over time. That is Dr. Azad Jameen, Chief Economist at the Financial Consultancy Firm Econometrics. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1717 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest. You are with Ms. Pumela Lezondi until 1800 hours. You can find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. Now, it was reported last week that more than 11,000 migrants have been rescued in the Mediterranean by aid groups and the Italian Coast Guard. The head of the International Organization for Migration, William Lacey Swing, confirmed that there were up to 3,500 migrant deaths in the Mediterranean just this year alone. Swink said that Europe needed to start looking at the situation differently if it wanted to see change. German Chancellor Angela Merkel has just ended a three-day trip to Africa to discuss ways the African Union can help resolve the migration problem. To help us analyze the situation further, Channel Africa spoke to Itai Vereri of the International Organization for Migration, Leon Isaacson, Managing Director of Global Migration, and Craig Smith, Specialist Immigration Practitioner. What we've seen in the last three years, I would say, is unprecedented numbers traveling from, I would say, maybe three parts uh, or three regions of the world, uh, West Africa, uh, the Horn of Africa, and from the Middle East. And, for example, last year we saw a record one million uh, migrants and refugees making their way uh, to Europe, crossing either the Aegean Sea between Turkey and Greece, or the Mediterranean uh, between uh, North Africa and, uh, and the southern coast of Italy. 
So these are numbers are unprecedented. I think we've heard over and over that this is this this level of movement, um, the highest we've seen since the the end of the Second World War. But what is particularly worrying is the number of people who are dying trying to make these journeys. Uh, so last year, for example, we saw uh, just under 3,700 mm. uh, people losing their lives. And already this year, before even the, the conclusion of 2016, we're talking of 3,611 as of yesterday. So this is uh, certainly a crisis. And uh, unfortunately, over and over, we've seen uh, meetings being held, people talking about how to, to stop this, but nothing concrete until I would say recently uh, has been done um, and you alluded to the UN summit that was recently held in New York uh, that certainly uh, is only the start of what needs to be done I want to come to you Leon uh, we've really looked at the sentiments in terms of uh, this being a big problem it seems to be growing uh, let me bring you in your thoughts on the discussion so far well I think we need to uh, take, take a little step back and look at the scale of of global displacement in the sense that um, obviously IOM Institute, sorry, International Organization for Migration and the UN are are measuring this and looking at it globally. Um, And this is, in terms of the numbers, it is is larger than the displacement human beings after the Second World War. There were estimated to be around 50 million people displaced after the Second World War and they're around about 60 million at the moment. Now, the concentration of our attention um, on, on Europe is around the movements out of Syria and those countries which are in obvious conflict in the Middle East, as well as some what you could call failed states and states which are in crisis in, in North Africa. And the movements into Europe are predominantly across the Mediterranean from North Africa and Middle East, and obviously the land movements um, through Syria, Turkey, and Eastern Europe, Greece, Eastern Europe, into Western Europe um, are the ones which are attracting a, a lot of attention. Now, clearly, uh, the deaths in the Mediterranean are, the drownings are, are part of um, the kind of hardship that people go through. Craig Smith, your sentiments? Look, I would say that at the end of the day, refugees and asylum seekers have always been stigmatized, they've always been marginalized, they've always been on the periphery. I think that the profile, uh, there's a misconception, I think the profile of many of the Syrian, who the, the dominant uh, proportion of the refugees, are generally educated, and I think there's that misconception. The only way that yeah. misconception is changed is by the rest of the world waking up uh, to appreciate what they can, what value they can add. So that in itself is initiative, is an, uh, an initiative. The second part would probably be by having a dominant player involved in this process, whether it's the, it, it's the U.S., whether it's the dominant player in the EU. I think Germany should be given a lot more credit for what it's done, but maybe they need to start off with smaller steps Obviously, they've taken a step backwards with Brexit, but maybe they get uh, rather have an agreement with a with a smaller set step uh, set of key objectives mm. than try and achieve it in one go. But they have to keep on moving forward and carrying this momentum. Otherwise, we are going to see innocent victims mm. die mm. and drown as we see every day. 
That is Craig Smith, specialist immigration practitioner, and you also heard from Leon Isaacson, who is the managing director of Global Migration, and Itai Vireri, who is the spokesperson of the International Organization for Migration. They were speaking to Benjamin Mushatama. More than a 1,000 people on Kenya's south coast embarked on a 500-kilometer walk on Monday to State House in Kenya's capital, Nairobi. This is to seek an audience with President Uhuru Kenyatta. The four-day walk, dubbed a tracking against statelessness, is meant to tell President Kenyatta about their plight of not being recognized by the Kenyan government as citizens after independence in 1964. Our reporter in Mombasa, Diana Wanyonyi, attended the start of the walk and filed this report. Walking silently with the placards raised above their heads with different messages on their stateless nationality to Kenyan government, the participants uniformly wear red t-shirts, officially launched the four-day walk at Makongeni area in Kuala County of Mombasa Island. So-called stateless community people include Makondes from Mozambique, the Pemba community from Tanzania, and other communities from Burundi and Rwanda. Thomas Nguli, chairman of Makonde Community, elaborates on the problem they are going through when it comes to issue of identity cards. We are tired of lies from the government officials. The law clearly stipulates that by August this year, we would have been all given identification cards. But already August has passed, but we have been given nothing and no government official has said anything about our matter as Makonde community. The question is, how will I get a birth certificate for my child? How will I get my land title deed? How will I bank my money when I don't have any national identification card? He added that a request from government officials to cancel the planned march was ignored as the affected people needed to be heard and their rights attended too. Today they have heard that we are walking to state house. Now they want us to dialogue with them. We don't have time for dialogue. We have time to walk. I also talked to some other members of Makonde community. I am Hatibu Bakari. I came from Pemba community with my parents when I was a teenager and I have children who have completed class 8. They are home because I don't have identity card. I am Amina Kasim, chair lady of Makonde community. I will walk without shoes to Nairobi because of bitterness. I was married here to a Kenyan man who later divorced. He has denied me access to my property. Now I earn a living through casual labor. If I had national identity card, I would have reported him to the human rights organization and I could have been heard. I'm Omari Sariako from Burundi community. We came here when we were young and we do not know any other country other than Kenya. It's sad that our efforts of getting identification documents has been in vain and we are getting a lot of problems. I don't know Mozambique and that is why I want to be a Kenyan because I was born here and I know here. I have buried my grandfather and my father here. I have children and grandchildren. Where will I take them? George Kegoro is the chief executive of Kenya Human Rights Commission. He says they have already tried all means to reach and convince the Kenyan government to give an ear to Makonde's concern, but it was all in vain. There is no other way. The only way is to walk to Nairobi if this time round they will hear us. I asked the Coast Chief Registrar of Persons, Agri Masai, to explain the requirements to qualify as a Kenyan citizen. We only need two things, age supportive document 
and the ID card of one of your parents. That is all. And you are registered. That was Agri Masai, Chief Registrar of Persons for Kenya Coast Region. And I'm Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. A group of six civil society organizations in South Africa have presented a joint submission to the United Nations Human Rights Council for its universal periodic review. Bobby Peake, who is the director of Groundwork, says their submission is aimed at highlighting the poor regulation of mining and coal-fired power generation in South Africa for the violation of human rights in the country. We have decided every four years there's a call by the United Nations for a periodic review of South Africa's human rights situation. And what we have done is we've got together as a variety of organizations and focused in on coal and on mining because that's, we believe, are the biggest human rights threat in South Africa now. So we have submitted that to the 27th session that is going to be sitting shortly in order for them to review this. With regards to mining and coal, what has uh, been found to be the major human rights uh, violation in South Africa. So we know that there's been a variety of research pieces. The Center for Applied Legal Studies, the Center for Environmental Rights and Groundwork have all or are about to release reports on coal mining in South Africa. And the Center for Environmental Rights has highlighted the poor governance around mining in South Africa. Mining destroys arable land. It, you know, it leads to the decline in food security. We also know that ESCOM's power stations that are fed by these mines are probably the dirtiest in the world. And that's impacting upon the people of Mpumalanga. And we have proved this with key research we did two years ago as groundwork to show that outdoor air pollution impacts upon people's health in the Mpumalanga area and 51% of deaths because of outdoor air pollution in the Mpumalanga area is because of ESCON's power stations. So, you know, those are the realities. But critically, in South Africa, we have a very high, you know, we have a scarcity of water. Our water has been contaminated by acid mine drainage. Farmers are having less water in Pumalanga area. And you know, to reverse acid mine drainage is extremely costly. And who's paying for that? Is the taxpayer. And the reality is once you've mined and acid mine drainage starts taking place, it's virtually impossible to reverse it. What needs to happen in order to improve these uh, human rights uh, conditions as uh, outlined by the group of uh, six civil society organization? Well, I think critically what is important is that the violence of the state against people needs to stop. Groundworking with community people from around the country today, and we're hearing stories of state intimidation, hearing stories of violence against people who are resisting mining. We know that Radebe Bazukarade from Tolabeni was murdered this year because of a mining struggle. We also know that people in the high felt have been beaten because of mining struggles. And we know that property in Somkele has been burned because of mining struggles. That is Bobby Peake. He is the director of Groundwork and he was talking to Wandi Lekalipa. Time for your news headlines here, Australia Netulo.
Thank you, Spumalele. Good evening. Burundi's parliament has voted overwhelmingly in favor of withdrawing from the International Criminal Court. A wanted warlord in southeastern DRC has surrendered five years after he escaped from prison. And finally, South African anti-apartheid struggle veteran Ahmed Kathrada has confirmed he will be at the Pretoria Regional Court on November 2nd to support Finance Minister Pravin Gordon. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Hello. 17.31 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumalele Zondi, and I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Tweet us. We are on Channel Africa 1 if you want to tweet us, or you can send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. If you prefer the old method of SMSing, you can send those to plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. That is a plus two seven seven nine six. Nine five seven nine three zero. That's where we will be taking your SMSs. Now, South African anti-apartheid struggle veteran Ahmed Katrada has indicated that he will be at the Pretoria Regional Court on November the second to support Finance Minister Pravin Kordan. This follows yesterday's decision by the National Prosecuting Authority to instate four charges against the minister. Reacting to the news, Katrada has stated that he'd accompany Pravin to court. He's expected to be joined by other board members of his foundation, including Derek Anegom, Laluchiba, Max Sisulu, Khalima Motlante, Barbara Hogan, Prima Naidu, and Sophie williams Brain, amongst others. To talk to us more about this, we have the foundation's director, Nishan Belton. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Nishan. Um, good evening, and good evening to listeners. Now, could you just please tell us what's the reason behind the foundation's support for the minister? The, the support for the for the minister stems from our concern um, about general issues of, of, of corruption and maladministration in the country and the kind of role that Treasury has been playing in terms of being in the forefront of the fight against corruption, particularly within the public sector. So that is in the first instance the, the, the first element of support. The second is our firm belief in the integrity and the, the the character of of the minister in particular, um, and, and and thirdly, w- would go to um, the, the the timing and the nature of, of of the case that has been brought against him. Mm. The timing, as as you know, coincides with him returning from a, what was seemingly a very very successful trip to attempt to re. re- restore investor confidence into the country, and also two weeks before he's about to deliver the budget, his midterm budget speech, which at this point in time, with all of the issues burning in the country, would be an important indicator about how government plans to deal with many of the pressing issues, including the fees issues at, at, at higher education. So it would seem that, that the, the timing of this was, was, was brought about such that to cause maximum damage to the economy, but also the nature of the charges themselves, mainly being fraud um, and theft to the minister, um, are ones that we, having looked at some some of the acts and having been involved in the public sector, are pretty well sure that 
these are procedural issues that would have been covered and that are probably covered by internal procedures within within Treasury and within SARS. So there is immense suspicion about why these charges are being brought at this point in time. And lastly, the fact that the, the, the announcement of these charges, unlike anybody else, you would be served a notice very publicly. This was done in a very private way. Um, the notice dropped off at the minister's home, and immediately thereafter a press conference is held to announce this. That can only be done to cause maximum embarrassment to the minister and, 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 and to Treasury itself. The National Prosecuting Authority has said that there was no political influence here. You don't believe them? Well, it's, it's very difficult to believe, um, but I suppose those issues will come out in, in court. Given the history of failure of the NPA of late, um, one, 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 one basically questions whether they, they have, I mean, so some people have, have described this as malicious prosecution. Um, prosecution simply being done for the sake of wanting to tarnish the image of the minister and hoping that in tarnishing him, he might well be removed from his post. So, so that is one possibility that is out there. We certainly take, take uh, some degree of confidence that the president has expressed his ongoing support for the minister. And we hope that the prosecuting authority, this is probably one of the poorly informed uh, cases that they are bringing forward, and that will be tested in court. Mm. So you say you'll be showing your support by going to court with them on November the 2nd? Mr. Kithrada would certainly want to do that. He has offered to, to, to go with the minister uh, to, 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 to accompany him into court and to be present in, 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 this, in this court session and as many others that, that, that would take place thereafter as far as is possible. As the Ahmed Kathrada Foundation, are you then leaving no room um, for a possibility that actually maybe the minister does have a case to, to answer to in court? Well, as we say, that, that, that is something that we, we, would, we, would, we would want to see play out in the courts itself. And if the, if there is, if the minister is guilty, then he must face the consequences. Uh, but certainly the timing, the nature of the announcements, uh, the nature of the charges themselves thus far, and of all of the legal opinions that have been uh, made available thus far online and everywhere else, certainly seems to be pointing to a fact that there is a very weak case being made here. Mm. Uh, he became finance minister after the economy and the RAND was doing badly in December um, after four days of the removal of Ntlantlanene. Um, you, you wouldn't then think that maybe when they put him there, they, they had trust in him being finance minister, no? Well, you know, one must recall that the president has reiterated that he... His preferred choice was Des van Rooyen. He, he, he thought that Des van Rooyen was certainly the most capable person. And reading from those statements, you get the sense that, that Kavin was certainly not his preferred option, but seems to have become the option out of consensus by the collective that made the decision. Uh, and, 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 and it would seem that if, if you look at after the announcement, there's a, there's a sequence of things that happen. Um, there is the announcement that, that he will be charged just before the budget speech. Then there's a whole range of questions that he's meant to be answering. He answers those questions. Then, then, then he is informed that he is not under investigation. 
um, and then he suddenly now he's being charged. So things don't seem regular in terms of all of the processes and the pronouncements that have been made around around the minister thus far. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. That is Nishan Belton. He is the director of the Ahmed Kathrada Foundation. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. October is Mental Health Awareness Month and the South African Federation for Mental Health says there may be people living with depression but have no idea where to go for help and sometimes may be ashamed to seek help because the stigma attached to the condition. In our weekly look at health issues, Channel Africa's Ayanda Mkwanazi focuses her attention on how depression can be overcome. It was back in university when 52-year-old Martha Abrahams, which is not her real name, started showing symptoms of depression. But little did she know that her symptoms would lead to something greater than she had expected. Abrahams from Johannesburg, South Africa, says it was not until two years ago that her depressive moods became more regular and she was finding it hard to cope with her day-to-day chores as a mother and the demands that came with her job. She says it was difficult to give her family the attention they needed. Her worst moment was feeling like a failure because she wasn't able to do the things she was supposed to. Abrahams couldn't keep up with the expectations of the world. She says she often wishes she had a terminal illness rather than depression, and perhaps that would make her feel less of a disappointment to her family. Abrahams toys around with the idea of taking her life. Although depression is high in the public domain, Abrahams feels that stigma and discrimination against people with the condition cannot be ignored. She fears being judged by society and has confided in her close relatives. According to the World Health Organization, or WHO, Globally, an estimated 350 million people of all ages suffer from depression. The WHO says depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide and is a major contributor to the overall global burden of disease. But back in South Africa, 60% of people who commit suicide are depressed, according to the South African Depression and Anxiety Group, or SADC. The suicide rate for children aged 10 to 14 years old has more than doubled over the last 15 years. Megan Dotti has been a support leader for SADC since 2013 and has been running a support group of about 15 people. She says talking about your depression is a form of therapy. The support group will allow them to talk about it more than 100 times. They can talk about it and they will also find out that there's other people in the same boat. I used to feel like that and this is what I did. Dotti says people don't understand depression. Families don't understand what is going on and they normally say to the person, just pull yourself together. There's no such thing as depression. There's no such thing as anxiety. Just pull yourself together. Now we can give that people a platform 
where they can actually come, talk about the problem. They can go home and, and feel much better. But the South African Federation for Mental Health, or SAFMH, says if people came forward and allowed themselves to be exposed to the help that is available, society would be a mentally healthier place. SAFMH is a non-profit organization that provides mental health services around the country. They have 17 mental health organizations that work directly in the communities and 116 support groups with over 2,000 people attending. The Federation's Bharti Patel says the organization is getting more queries from countries in the SADC region about access to mental health facilities and how they can help them to establish these in their own countries. Our neighboring countries don't have pieces of legislation like we have. Mm. You know, where you can mm. hold government accountable for providing services. It's about how we encourage them to start with, you know, building pieces of legislation, policies that will guide their services. In addition, Patel says before the end of the year, a mental health forum for Africa will be hosted to support neighboring countries where we are looking at developing a mental health forum for Africa. Through this forum, one can look at how we can support our neighboring countries, Mm. uh, but also learn what is beneficial that they are doing in their countries. Meanwhile, clinical psychologist Zamombele emphasizes that if people don't seek help, the implications can be severe and debilitating. The quality of life depreciating. And this we see in terms of their functionality really not being what um, it was before or what it should be. And this is also mostly through the symptoms that one experiences uh, when they have a, a, um, a depressive episode or when they've been diagnosed with de- depression and it's untreated, including, uh, for example, a, an extremely low mood for a long enough time. So it's tearfulness. Um, feeling guilty, feeling tired, um, even having uh, pains in your body that cannot be explained away from a physiological uh, place, uh, back pain, headaches. He warns that one of the greatest impact is also the global economy. As more people are depressed, fewer turn up for work, which will affect the working environment and companies all over. Uh, Psychiatric and psychological conditions, specifically depression, cost the economy uh, very many billions globally and annually. Um, and that's through, for example, loss of production, because, of course, when a person experiences depression, their concentration is also shocked, their motivation specifically shocked. Often they miss more days than, than they do. Mbele says, fortunately, help is available through medication, effective counseling and therapy. But, he adds, that it is important for people to be mindful of their mental health. Taking the time to walk or relax or exercise will play an important role in the well-being of your mind in the future. Gone are the days where, you know, as professionals, we just throw pearls at the problem. Though with that said, we do know that medication, as is the case for other general medical conditions such as hypertension or diabetes, um, medication can really assist in the management of it. The WHO has made mental health one of its priorities through its Mental Health Gap Action Program. The program aims to help countries increase services for people with mental, neurological and substance use disorders. For Channel Africa, Amayandam Kwanazi. Your economic news with Wasana Matawula.
Good evening. Thanks, Espumelele. South African economists have warned the country could see a free fall in the exchange rate if the rating agencies downgrade it to a non-investment grade. Chief economist at Econometrics, Alza Jamini, says it's important that the Treasury's credibility is protected following the announcement by the NPA that Finance Minister Pravin Goran has been summoned on fraud charges. The announcement has sparked an outcry from all sectors uh, within uh, the Southern African nation as uh, the South African rent fell by more than 3% in response to this news. In the event of populist elements taking hold of National Treasury, there is scope for huge excesses in government spending, many of them not for very productive purposes, and that would see our public debt levels soaring ahead. That in turn would automatically cause credit ratings to downgrade our credit rating, Mm. and that in turn could result in a sharp freefall in the exchange rate that sends inflation and interest rates up very sharply, leading to a recession, which exacerbates the ability of the government to raise revenue. Uganda's second biggest cement maker, Hema, which is a unit of a Lafarge Holcim, plans to raise its market share and increase exports to neighboring markets by doubling production capacity in early 2018. The firm has planned to commission a new $40 million production plant by early 2018. Hema Cement is ranked behind Tororo Cement and the industry has two other smaller domestic producers. Uganda accounts for about 70% of the firm's annual cement sales, followed by Rwanda, which takes 20%, while the rest shared between South Sudan and the Eastern Congo. Restructuring loss-making career Kenyan Airways will take a month appealing to pilots to withdraw a strike notice and join discussions. Tourism Minister Najib Balala, who sits in a cabinet subcommittee tasked with reviving the partly state-owned airline, said a pilot strike will further harm the airline. Visitor numbers and earnings have sagged after peaking in 2011, had by security worries stalked by Somali Islamist group Archibald's attacks inside Kenya in retaliation for involvement of Kenyan troops in the conflict in Somalia. Meanwhile, a Kenyan private equity firm, Catalyst Principal Partners, has bought a controlling stake in Tanzanian pharmaceutical company Zenufa Laboratories. The acquisition of Zenufa is a Catalyst's fourth investment in Tanzania and second investment in the healthcare sector. In 2014, it acquired Kenya's Mimosa Pharmacy, which was later rebranded Good Life Pharmacy and is rolled out across the region. Brett Wilkinson reports. The 125 million US dollar private equity firm is making waves in the Big Boys Investment Club, which is currently dominated by players like Centum Investment by pumping in millions of dollars into the region's high-potential businesses. Zenufa manufactures over-the-counter and prescription drugs for the Tanzanian market. The main challenge Zenufa faced before Catalyst bought into it was poor marketing strategy and a lack of capital. The company, however, has a fairly healthy balance sheet and is profitable. Back to the South African big story, the rand gaining momentum against a basket of currencies. This after the National Prosecuting Authority said that Finance Minister Pravin Goran may ask for a review of a decision to charge him with fraud. Godan was issued with a summons yesterday to appear in court on, the, on November 2nd over fraud charges. Chief Prosecutor Sean Abrams says 
He's more than willing to review the matter if Godan asks him to do so. Abrams says the minister can submit representations at any time. Let's look now at uh, your financial indicators and the dollar trading now at 14.09 against the South African Rand at 10.53 Botswana Pula and 9.87 against the Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.81 to the British Pound and 0.90 against the Euro. The commodities market uh, gold has gained to $1,257 and conversely platinum going down $951 per ounce and the spot price of Brent crude oil at $52.62 per barrel. That's your economics news. It's time for sports news. Now here's Mosabuti. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with cricket news. South Africa posted 327 for the loss of eight wickets in their innings after winning the toss and choosing to bat first in Wednesday's fifth and final one-day international against Australia in Cape Town. The Proteas are looking to whitewash the Australians already leading the series 4-0 with the Newlands clash the final uh, match in the series. Riley Rousseau's 122 runs and JP Dumini's 73 runs got the Proteas to the big total. Australia now needs 328 runs to win and 15, uh, rather, and 50 overs to avoid a whitewash. Now to football news, Zamalek arrived in South Africa earlier today and immediately got down to business um, in preparing for Saturday's African Champions League, um, League final at the Tswana University of Technology Stadium. Despite the disruptions on the campus earlier in the week, the Egyptian Giants face South Africa's reigning champions, Mamlodi Sundowns, in the first leg of the final on Saturday night at the Lucas Muripe Stadium in the country's capital, Pretoria. Zamalek striker Emmanuel Muyaka knows of the task that lies ahead. Yeah, every game is a different game. We cannot say every game is the same. Last time we came here, we, we lost one year. They came that side, they beat us one year. So I believe uh, game three to be to be a different game. Try to We'll try to do our best. I have a problem. <laughs> we'll try to do our best and uh, see how it goes. Meanwhile, Mamelodi Sundowns head coach Bito Mosamani says they are on a mission to get the desired result at home. This is nine months. And with kilometers, uh, playing in a foreign land, different reflexes, uh, uh, training pieces that grass come to your knees, um, transit for six to eight hours, coming back from transit, coming here and... When you land in a day and a half, you've got to go to Pulukwane and play that game in Pulukwane and try to win it because you want to win the league. The stress levels are totally different and different formations. And officiating in that space is totally different from here. So you, there you need to toughen up. You need to toughen up. So you can compete domestically. You know you're going to get who's the referee and, and you know the style of refereeing and all that. And you know the pattern and you know the oppositions very well. You know how the coach thinks. Over there, 
is uh, you, you, you're going out of your comfort zone. And it's the biggest game that we have played for nine months, this tournament, within a 15-month program. And finally, in rugby news, Springbok number 8, Dwayne Fermielen, has revealed his frustrations at the current state of affairs within South African rugby and head out to the game's administrators. The box suffered a humiliating 57-15 um, defeat to the All Blacks of New Zealand in their final rugby championship fixture in Durban at the weekend, a result which left the 30-year-old angry as well as unhappy. Fermielen, who plies his trade at Toulon in, front, in the French four, um, top 14, revealed that it's difficult to return to South Africa because of the way rugby is being administrated in the country. At the same time, SA Rugby announced on Tuesday that former Springbok centre Brendan Fenter will lead a coaching endeavour next week aimed at finding solutions to the box current woes. Well, those are sports news at the hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-five Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. The news of criminal prosecution of South Africa's finance minister continues to generate varying views. The South African Federation for Mental Health says people living with depression sometimes have no idea where to go for help. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Pumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Send us emails: info at channelafrica.co.za. SMSs plus two seven seven nine. Nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Tweet us, Channel Africa One. We live with Abum Shaga and the Ashley Mclopez Bambanan.